Once I started something serious, I feel like it's in my body until it's finished. So even if there's a few days when I'm not working on it, it's like I'm under the shadow of this thing and it doesn't end until the book is finished. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Chris Krause is that rare writer to capture not only the literary imagination, but also the pop culture zeitgeist. When her rather sleepy 1997 novel, I Love Dick, was reissued in 2006, it was suddenly embraced as a feminist classic by a new generation of readers. Among them were two of TV's most important trailblazers, Lena Dunham and Jill Soloway. Soloway herself, who describes her experience of the book as an artistic awakening, ultimately adapted I Love Dick in 2016 as a television series. Chris, a longtime member of Art Center's graduate art faculty, possesses an admirable drive to question norms and push boundaries. This, in turn, has always fueled her desire to forge new creative frontiers. After stints in New York's experimental filmmaking communities, she found her calling as a writer. In the 20 years since, she has been remarkably prolific, publishing three novels and several collections of essays. Her most recent work, after Kathy Acker, is a biography of the 90s New York art world icon and experimental novelist. In our lively and candid conversation, Chris and I discussed her background in experimental theater, her commitment to stripping artifice from her characters by writing through a mask, and her distinctive passion for Kathy Acker. Finally, we explore the complexities surrounding the success of I Love Dick in the context of her lifelong exploration of the spiritual and creative value of failure. I wanted to begin our conversation by asking you a little bit about your background, and I have a specific question about you as a child and what you remember about your own creative spirit as a child, if you do remember much about that. Very little. Um, it's funny. In all my books, I've never really written about my childhood. And I have a feeling um, I'm finishing an essay collection now, but I have a feeling that's next. I hope to start a new novel in the fall. And so I've been thinking a lot about what I remember and find hard to remember. As a very small child, certainly I remember play, rolling down hills, running, looking at animals, insects, and then all those kind of years collapse, and um, I remember a lot about early adolescence, and then kind of fast forward into um, basically being an adult. Mm. But do you have any any sense, or can I trigger any sense even in this conversation, about a creative spirit that was in you? Maybe uh, for you, it's interesting, given you, some of your writing, some relationship with some transitional objects that might have been interesting, your own kind of imaginative life as a child. I think it's more of a decreative spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly I remember myself as being in opposition ah. to things. Ah, yeah. And then seeking escape via reading and ideas of what it would be like to be in a city and a less repressive environment. Before my family emigrated to New Zealand, I went to elementary school in a blue-collar Connecticut town, you know, public school, very 
alienated and reading all these reading all these things that I had nobody to talk about with outside of my family. Mm-hmm. So definitely like reading and, and my father would bring home like the New York Review of Books, which I would read at a young age and think about New York and think about the intellectual and art worlds and literary worlds. And how old were you when you moved to New Zealand? Um, I was 14. And how long were you there? I came back when I was 21. So I, I went to high school and university in New Zealand, and I worked for a while there as a newspaper reporter. But that's actually, as b- being a journalist, that's my first memory of, like, the excitement of being a writer. I won a scholarship in my second year of university and gave you a little money, but also it gave you a job for a year as a feature writer on the newspaper. That was incredibly exciting. I think I was like 17 Mm. at the time. Mm. And like being in the newspaper reporter's room and having the chance to go out and do these stories where you would embed yourself in some other world for a week or two and then write about it. I couldn't think of anything more exciting. Were you actually doing news stories or were you also writing columns? No, as a feature writer, you get to, or at least at the time, you would get to spend a lot of time researching another culture, another world, you know, something that you were doing the story about. So I did stories about rural communities and um, gestalt and counter movements. I did a story about China. I went to the People's Republic of China when I was 17. And Wow wrote about the Cultural Revolution in China. Wow. So all of these were like adventures, getting to have an adventure and then come back and write about it. And so I remember sitting up late nights, you know, being on a deadline and trying to piece together this story. And it was just nothing more vivid or exciting. And was it during those years that you discovered your interest or capacity for writing? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But then I left it behind. I had a pretty good career as a journalist by the time I was 21. And I thought, oh, my God, what's my life going to be like 20 years from now? Exactly the same. (laughs) So I thought, no, I want to be an artist. But specifically, if my reading is correct, in theater, no? I mean, you went and worked with Lee Brewer and Joanne Acolytus and Mabel Mines. Is that right? At that time, artist to me meant to be an actress. Uh So I went to New York and I found these people that I just read about and I was able to study with them. Pretty great people. Yes, amazing people and amazing teachers. Ruth Malachek, she was, I think, really one of the greatest actresses of her generation, and she was an incredible teacher. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit more about your life in that theater world in New York at that time, something that interests me personally. Well, they opened a studio called Recherche, and this is really interesting. I mean, I I think I was at the tail end of people who didn't necessarily get an MFA, if they wanted to be an artist. It was like New York was still, it was the end of the era when New York was the MFA. Right. Just going to New York was the MFA. Right. Um, and, and Ruth and Lee were aware of this. They were already being invited to teach in institutions, but they wanted to create an alternative to the institution, which was, you know, heroic and short-lived, but they did do it for four or five years. They got grant money to open a studio called Recherche, and they invited cohorts of 12 people to work with them privately in the studio. And I think the process is is so similar to what goes on here and other MFA programs. Mm. You know, we use the studio to rehearse in and to work. And we had these long critiques that would go on for like eight hours every Friday night, mm. you know, when people would show their work and Ruth and Lee would critique it. Mm. And um, I really learned how to teach, actually, by watching them 
They didn't allow for a lot of discussion. That's really fa- You know, a lot of people teach writing by the workshop process. You know, the teacher kind of sits back and lets the students go at it. They didn't do that. We hardly got to talk. You know, we were listening to Ruth and Lee talk for six hours, seven hours at a time. And by doing that, you really kind of learn a lot about their process of looking at work and their process of thinking. And I mean, that's what they were teaching, of course. They were teaching their process. They weren't really teaching any particular subject. To what extent was it performance and to what extent was it writing that they were engaging in? Well, I mean, people were performing original work, right? So they're critiquing the performance. They're critiquing the content. But it wasn't just textual writing. It was also performance No, no, I was there as a performer. As a performer, I was creating – I did a play called Disparate Action, Desperate Action that I performed in. With with a partner, uh-huh. you know, and and we performed that in New York. So no, they were critiquing everybody's work as uh, writing and performance as the you know the whole thing. Right. A couple of other theater questions. One: Did Richard Schechner, in fact, ruin your life? I was hyperbolizing. <laughs> Which is, just for the listeners, a citation in, in I Love Dick. Yes, that's yeah, that's right. I was yeah. hyperbolizing. Did you know Richard? Did well, you... of course. I mean, yeah. you know, I didn't make anything up in the book I Love Dick. It was more what I left out. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it's funny. When I wrote that book, I really didn't think anybody would be reading it beyond three, four, five hundred people. So I felt very free. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, now I would never have said things that I said about people. Mm-hmm. It was so unmediated. Mm-hmm. Was there a clear transition from theater to film for you? Well, yeah, it was very clear in a way. You know, um, after several years at Recherche, Ruth said, well, I don't really see this acting thing working out for you. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever thought about film? And for some reason, she thought that I should watch Michael Snow's films. I'd never heard any, the structuralist canon, I'd never heard of any of it. Never taken an interest. But she said I should watch Wavelength by Michael Snow. Mm. So I went to Anthology Film Archives and I paid Jonas Mika's $25 to project it for me. And that was so revelatory. You know, Wavelength being the film where um, it's a single shot, a slow zoom in that takes 60 minutes and the viewer goes through so many transformations in those 60 minutes. It's comedy, it's boredom, it's high drama. And it was a whole art education. And clearly it captured your imagination. Yes. Yeah. Was the film as a form able to do something that the theater wasn't? Or how did that experience that you just described connect with your own work in the theater? It was a total epiphany. In the sense of a shift away? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I saw that film was a way of materializing the inside of your mind, which was something that I kind of wanted to do in theater, but maybe theater was not the right form for me to do that in. Mm. It was clear that I wasn't going to be an actress. That was all the wrong idea. Mm. You know, I would have had to, like, fix my teeth, take a million classes, like, dance, yoga, voice. Everything would have had to be different. And there wasn't really much future for directing kind of weird theater. And not that there was much future for directing experimental film either, but I believed. And it was so exciting to see these films. 
Um, and I watched a lot of other structural films at the time. You know, the uh, the James Benning film of the smoke pouring out of the smokestack and all the things that happen in your mind while you're disciplining yourself to just sort of be still and watch this one thing. You know, John Cage and this whole idea of duration. Right. So it's all very exciting. But then that also led to montage. You know, instead of one long, slow take, what can happen and editing. Mm. And that became the thing that interested me more as as a maker. I never I never did that structural filmmaking thing, but I did I was used to working with people because of the theater. So in my first film, I invited a bunch of people, a lot of them theater people, to an abandoned hotel in the Catskills. And people acted out different scenes and created different environments in the room. But the at the end we all came together and read King Lear. out of curiosity why Lear what was it about reading that particular play I just thought that was the most perfect play you know I guess I could have chosen The Tempest I could have chosen another play but at that moment it seemed like that was the play that contained everything that was important to me at that moment Hmm. does that persist with that play just out of curiosity well I still love the play there have been other plays (laughs) do you have a theater background I do I do which is why I'm so interested in this too yeah what were you a director I was and I am. Really? Yeah, and there's a lot of connection for me between what I'm doing now as a college president and what I did as a theater director. In fact, I would argue it's the greatest preparation possible to be a college president. That makes total sense. Yeah, it's the same work. Yeah. Yeah, and draws the same kind of creative energy out of me as well. I, too, was never a very good actor. Yeah. Too much in my head, you know. I'd be critiquing myself too much while I was on stage. And yeah, me too. That's, that's death. Me too. So I yeah. became a writer and you became a college president. And I became a college president, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about that transition from journalism to theater and theater to film. And now I'm interested in from film to writing. Yeah, well, as it turned out, there wasn't much of a career path in experimental film. And it cost a lot to make them. Uh-huh. It was completely unsustainable. Economically, it was a problem. It, economically, it was unsustainable. And at some point, after all this work and all this struggle, you do want people to see it. Yeah. And that really wasn't happening. Right. You know, I, I, I would be invited to show the films in a club and set up the projector and, like, people would be walking through the projection mm. at 2 in the morning. Mm. And this thing that I'd worked on for, like, yeah. a year and a half, yeah. nobody was seeing it. And I finally had the opportunity to make a feature film by getting funding back in New Zealand. That that took two and a half years to make and all this money and Sylvain and I had to put our personal money into it to finish it and it didn't get into any festivals no one was going to see it I mean there was no just already there was no distribution mechanism at that point for an independent 16 millimeter narrative film it was either going to be a hit and be released you know theatrically or it was going to languish unseen and what was that film called? Called Gravity and Grace. So that was taken from the Simon Veil. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Title, right. Was that the last film you made? It was the last film I made, yes. After that film, I swore that I would never make another film until I understood why my films hadn't been successful. Mm. And so that became the work of I Love Dick. Right. I mean, in my mind, anyway, was to kind of use myself as a case study to discover why my films had been failures. 
I mean, a lot of people now have read this book, but for the listeners, can you just give a, a sense of what I Love Dick is about? It's an epistolary novel. It's a comedy. It takes the form of love letters to another person. The characters are Chris and Silver, just like me, Chris, and my husband, Silver, at the time, and longtime collaborator. Chris and Silver collaborate eventually on love letters to a third party. Dick Blank, who is the um, dean of critical studies at CalArts at the time. Dick never replies to the letters, but neither does he say, stop writing to me, it's driving me crazy. And so Dick becomes a blank screen onto which Chris can project everything. He becomes her perfect listener. Or if you think about it in acting terms, he becomes her silent partner. And you wrote that book 21 years ago now, right? Yes. I mean, the letters were written in 94. I wrote it as a book in 96, 97, and that's when it came out, the end of 97. Right. And again, as you said earlier, you thought maybe four or 500 people would read it. Yes. But then it had a renaissance 15 years later, correct? It did. Why? Um, well, our co-editor, my partner and friend, Hedy Alcalti, with Semiotext, um, in 2006, he thought it would be a good idea to bring it out again in a new edition. And he did, with an essay by Joan Hawkins and another essay by Eileen Miles. Right. And somehow it hit a sweet spot in 2006 that hadn't existed when the book came out. All these younger women who were blogging and keeping blogs. You know, that was like the height of the blog movement in 05, 06. And these brilliant women who didn't have book deals yet were self-publishing their work on blogs. And a lot of these women picked it up. Emily Gould, Ariana Raines, Jackie Wang, Sheila Hardy. They've since become very established and great, successful writers. But at the time, they were just blogging, but they had huge readerships of their blogs. And so the book, assumed a readership of all these younger women. And it took off, right? And it uh, took off, yeah. yeah. And, what, and then it traveled out through the culture a lot quicker than it would have in right. the 90s. And all the way to a television program, yeah. too, a television series that's up now. So I'm interested in, in the experience for you, because the way you just talked about it, I mean, you wrote them in 94, it was published in 97, and then suddenly, 15, 20 years later, it's all over the place, and here we are talking about it again. And I'm sure the questions you were asking at that time have some relevance to this moment, but probably it's very, very different for you. I'm curious about what that experience is like for you as a Well, creator. I mean, it has to be like a good breakup, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I suppose that's right. You know, as, as a person that you have fond memories of, you know? Or otherwise, you know, I mean, I thought about the play Crap's Last Tape when I was thinking about you with this. You, do you know that play? Yeah. Right. And so he's listening at age 69 to himself on the tape at age 39 and listening to the age 39 crap, listening to the 20 something crap. Right. And feeling that alienation of the ever changing self in time. And wondered if that was a reflection or if that was in any way uh, close to the kind of experience you've had with this book? Well, I'm not a modernist, and I'm not Samuel Beckett. I'm a contemporary woman in America. So I can't be alienated from the work. I have to, you know, if people are putting energy into it now, and it's finding a readership, I have to be as available as I can to that moment and readership without it completely overriding myself and my work in the present. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to be a good sport. 
in other words. You do, but... Of course, what else can you be but gracious and a good sport And you if people pick up something that you did all those years ago? Exactly. I understand. I'm just interested in you personally, what your experience is with that. No, it's horrifying. <laughs> all right, I got there. <laughs> I got there. And I'm sure you are an incredibly good sport, but if I look at stuff that I worked on, yeah, that long ago. Yeah, very different. And I'm asking different questions, and I'm interested in different things. Though the yes, the shadow of that time is very present. You know, and it's become successful as a completely other thing than the thing that I thought I was writing. It's become successful as a coming of age novel, mm. and I thought I was writing about the civil wars in Guatemala and rural poverty. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't even realize that it kind of added up to a kind of Kunstler Roman, mm -hmm. which is how people read it now. Right, exactly. Talk about letters as a form that you chose to express a lot of this. I didn't know I was writing a book, right? Which is interesting to that's me, too. That's the most important part. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I really thought that I was just writing letters to this person, that it was a kind of art project. Right. It wasn't until 97 when I went out to the desert with years worth of folders and copies of the letters and sat down. To, I rented a cabin and said, OK, I'm going to write a book. And that's when I added the third person narration. I edited the letters a little bit. I didn't rewrite them and I didn't change them. I just made them shorter. So the letter form, I think the letter form was what made it possible for me to start writing. Two things, really. My background in journalism, you know, remembering when I started writing again after all those years, you know, what it was like to be in the reporter's room. And instead of the agony of the blank page, it's like, oh, you've got to write 600 words in an hour. Mm. And you just sit down to do it. Mm -hmm. And I kind of brought that journalist discipline mm -hmm. to it when I started again. Mm -hmm. But also the letter gives you a recipient, someone that you're talking to. And that's the hardest thing for anybody who's starting out writing. You know, in writing programs, they talk about finding your voice. I think what they're really saying when they say that is finding out who is your audience, who are you speaking to, because it's so relational. And that's such an acting thing, too. I right, mean, right. you know, who is your acting partner completely determines how you're going to do the script. Right, exactly. And did you ever do that acting exercise called Silent Partner? Describe it. You're doing a scene, and you project the face of somebody from your real life like a hologram right, right. over the face of your partner. Right. So it's like we're talking now, but I'm imagining you're my mother. Right, exactly, right. And that totally colors yeah. how you do your script. By the way, you look a little pale. Did you have breakfast this morning? <laughs> <laughs> That's an old somebody routine. I can't remember where it was from. So the letter form both allows you to imagine the recipient, the listener, Right. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's pure projection. Yes. So who is listening is also a projection of your own imagination. Exactly. Writing on the silence, I believe, was the phrase you used, which I thought was so beautiful. And so it becomes a kind of performance. Right. Yeah. Right. And I continue to see that. Right. I, I continue to see writing that way. Okay, so I'm going to leave I Love Dick for a minute and come back to it. But now let's go to Kathy Acker because I've heard you talk about that book in such interesting ways. The wonder of, of quote-unquote, cannibalizing another person, that you were almost possessed by Kathy Acker. It felt like you were speaking as an actor. Kathy Acker was the character. 
Chris Krause was the actor performing Kathy. I'm so glad you read it that way. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, very, very few people pick that up. So that does resonate for you, huh? Yeah. Wow. Let's tell, again, the listeners about this particular book, too, and what you did with it before I ask a few other questions on it. Well, it's a literary biography of another writer, Kathy Acker. She's an American writer who was active, I would say, between the years 1972 and 97 when she died. Mm. She died very prematurely at the age of 50 of untreated breast cancer. She was extremely popular and commercially successful in the 80s. She was a, I would say she was one of the most intellectually brilliant people of her generation. She was an incredibly disciplined writer, very aggressive, very transgressive. You know, the fashion for a while in the 80s was, you know, in the in art and literature was toward, and in theater too, towards transgression. And Kathy became kind of an avatar of literary transgression. But she was so much more than that kind of facile, kind of blood and guts and HIV needles kind of transgression. Mm -hmm. She was a truly innovative experimental writer. She used a lot of techniques that came from high literature from different places and times in the 20th century. And she made them popular and contemporary. She kind of imported them into the aesthetic of her generation in New York, which was like the pictures generation. Yeah, amazing, amazing woman. Why were you compelled to write a biography about her? Because she was there. Um, <laughs> and because I was partly there. You know, she was an older contemporary. I didn't know her socially, but I read her books when they were self-published, like everybody else in the East Village was reading them. And I felt like her voice was going straight into my head and my heart. It was like she was speaking for me in a much more kind of intelligent and poised manner than I could ever come up with myself. A rare experience for you to engage with another artist that way? No, not at all. Oh, so it's a common experience. I mean... A lot of my work is art writing. Right. And so whenever I write about an artist, I feel like I'm doing that to a lesser degree. Right. I'm but, trying to but sort But that of... kind of internalization, I mean, for me, it happens rarely. It happens for, you know, there are a couple of people, a couple of writers who just, I know what oh, you mean. I know they, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. They get inside of me. Yes, in a way. you're right. But it's you're a, right. Right. It's a very No, of rare... course that doesn't happen that often. Yeah. It's Simone Weil. Uh-huh. You know, I swallowed her whole... That's, yeah. yeah, totally cannibalized her, but not many other writers like that. Oh, she is unbelievable, yeah. Let's go back to I Love Dick for a moment. You referenced this earlier in our conversation. You talked about writing yourself as a case study. Yes. Say more about that. What do you mean? Oh, well, if the question that I set myself was, how do I explain the failure of my films? I was determined to not see it completely personal, right? The culture encourages us always to personalize success and failure. And it's a big lie because success and failure is so arbitrary and it's so relational. It has to do with the context, right? Mm. I mean, certainly this has been something I've learned as an art writer. And I've studied when I write about someone, I often look at the different ways that their work has been received over time and how the perception changes 
according to the time. So I was I, I was determined to become like an art historian of my own work, right? <laughs> and, you know, and take the sort of terrible feelings of shame and failure and humiliation out of myself and externalize them and look at it more in relation to the culture. So that took me in a lot of different directions. One of the directions that I explored was second wave feminism and what had become at that moment, the late 90s, to the women who were leaders of the second wave feminist movement. There's a chapter in the book called Route 126, where I went and I tracked down some of the women who'd been in that program in CalArts in the 70s and what had become of them. And that was a fascinating story. So these were all kind of journalistic forays into aspects of the culture that I thought might explain something important that needed to be talked about. And Dick Blank, my perfect listener, the dean of critical studies at CalArts and kind of a cowboy intellectual, he also represented things in the culture that I was both attracted to and felt that I had to prove myself before and was at odds with. Mm. So that's a very volatile combination. Mm -hmm. And what better combination could you choose to be in dialogue with if you want to bring things out of yourself and of the culture that you think need to be said? So definitely there were gender politics in there, but there were cultural politics, there were class politics, there were geographical politics. It was a very political book. It is, but it's also a deeply personal book. I mean, I think I connect to that book because of your courage in opening yourself up, right. of your vulnerability. Right. I mean, it becomes truly personal in a way that an art – I mean, I don't think an art or a literary work can be political without being first primarily deeply personal right? because that's the material that you have to work with. And to go back to the letters themselves, reading letters – is a very special opportunity. When I read letters to somebody else, I feel like I'm being let in on a secret. Something is drawing me in and I'm having access to information or personal struggle or questions that somebody's wrestling with in a very kind of private way. I feel special reading a letter. And I think a lot of the form of this book carried me because of the letter form itself. And because you were letting me in that way. It's very intimate, isn't it? It is. It, it is very intimate. It's like reading a diary or looking at an artist's sketchbook. Exactly. And the diary letter form in this book, I Love Dick, too, is, I mean, there's a very thin line between the two of them anyway, right? Even the DD of Dear Dick and Dear Diary echoes throughout the book as well. Yeah. Eventually, Dear Dick became Dear Diary. Yeah, exactly. But working on the biography of Kathy Acker... One thing that made it easy was that she was alive during the era of letter writing. And a lot of material that I got came from letters that she sent to other people and that those people saved. That's so interesting. And you you accessed her that way. Yes. Yeah. Through other people's as we archives. Ac- as we access you through I Love Dick. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's nice. I didn't even bother to go to her archive at Duke. I went to archives where other people's archives were kept, who had kept her letters. And then, really kind of thrillingly, word got out that I was working on it. And a couple of her exes came forward and contacted me and said, oh, I kept this package of letters that Kathy wrote to me 25 years ago. Would you like to see them? And the letters were useful, not because I even ended up writing about this or that romance in the book, 
but because the letter says I went to the market and I bought braised cabbage. You talked a little bit about how you began the writing of I Love Dick, and we can talk about some of your other books as well if it's pertinent, but when you went into beginning to write about Kathy Acker with this very clear kind of, you were so compelled by her, both on a personal historical level, but also by her work itself. Did you know where you were going with this, or did you really begin in a place of uncertainty? It was a two-decade process, but luckily not continuously. I thought that I wanted to write the book right after she died. I remember I was teaching at Art Center then, and um, I always do the assignments with the students. You know, when we do in-class writing, I always write alongside them. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of my class writing during those classes was about Kathy. I was, like, very, very affected by her death. And I had just started writing myself, and I was very much under her influence. So I went and I did a round of interviews with people like Martha Rosler and her ex-husband and ex-partner, Lynn Neufeld. And um, I published a couple of pieces about Kathy at that time. But then I, I dropped it. It just, you know, it felt too close to I Love Dick somehow. And, like, I was going to get branded as a certain kind of writer if I continued. Hmm. So I just put it away. Hmm. I didn't pick it up again until 2014. And by then, so many other things had happened, and it was long in the past. And it was clear to me that I was going to write about it in a much more detached way at that point. And my first thought was, I'm going to write some critical essays about her. I could do that, you know, just literary criticism. So I started off kind of almost writing it as literary critical essays, but then I realized there's all this biographical material, and I'm so well-positioned, people will talk to me. I've got to do both. And then once I made that decision at the beginning of 2015, I just flew through it. Do you think that the distance allowed you to get to that performative state that we talked about before, the acting of Kathy? Yes. In a way that you probably wouldn't have been able to earlier on? Definitely. It was, you know, it was writing through distance. Uh-huh. You know, the way I talk about and I love Dick, you know, that, that Kierkegaardian third remove, that you can perform something best if you're reaching towards it through the distance. Mm, lovely. You've done amazing amount of research. I mean, you knew her cold, right? But an actor can do that for a character, too. Right. And then you open it up. So the reader, my experience, I am simultaneously learning about Kathy and about Chris. And that dynamic exists. Those two figures are constantly oscillating all the time, along with the other various different characters that you bring into as well. It's that was I developed a process for writing the book that was kind of specific to what you're talking about. Every section of the book, every chapter I had a process that that I thought of as like pre-production, where I wouldn't write at all, and I was just living with the materials. And if there was a handwritten manuscript of Kathy's, I would type it myself. If there was an interview, an audio interview, I would transcribe it myself. And it was just trying to get her voice in my body hmm. for weeks before a, I read a word. An actor prepares, right? <laughs> <laughs> And then when I actually sat down to write it, it was like a collision between me and her that was happening in the process. Wow. Must have been a very profound experience. Must have been amazing to go through. Yeah, it was like a live seance and inviting the reader to it. Right. 
And different from fiction, right? Though, I mean, your experience with fiction must be interesting because your work always draws on something autobiographical, right? Or real events, let's or say. Real events. Real events. real events, right. But such a difference there in terms of how you draw on that as opposed to some fictional plot or idea that would evolve through creating it in, in imagination only. Actually, I, there's very little difference to me. Mm. When I write fiction, it begins in my diaries. And before I begin the book, there's the same kind of process of sifting through diaries and internalizing that material and figuring out what the form is going to be. So whether I am internalizing my own material or another person's, it's the same thing in a way. There's a kind of collision between the present moment of writing and the sources. And how much of what you want to create in your writing comes through the process of writing itself? Oh, a lot. As opposed to the preparation piece of it, I mean. Well, you have to prepare and prepare and prepare. You know, I mean, writers who work this way, you know, how long did you work on the book? You know, 10 years, mm. but only six months of them writing. Mm-hmm. Once you have the first page and you know how you're going to write it, it kind of writes itself. But it takes a long time to figure out, like, what your position is going to be. Right. Once I started something serious, I feel like it's in my body until it's finished. Mm. So even if there's a few days when I'm not working on it, it's like I have this thing. I'm under the shadow of this thing. And it doesn't end until the book is finished. You're carrying it. Yeah. yeah. And there's this incredible lightness and release, you know, those first days or weeks after finishing. Yeah. Yeah. It's lovely. This is a quick digression here. Eileen Miles, I think in her introduction to I Love Dick, she says something really interesting. She cites Carl Dreyer's exhortation to use artifice to strip artifice of artifice. Do you remember that? <laughs> that right. makes total sense. Right. How does that make sense to you? Oh, kind of something to do with the mask. You know, another thing, I guess we haven't talked about this, but I always believe that I'm writing through a mask. Hmm. Even when it's, you know, first person about events that occurred to, to, to me, who I'm speaking about, I can't write it until I find the right mask. Wow. It's always a mask. But that doesn't mean that it's not true. And that mask is worn as you're doing the writing. It's like a character mask. Did you when you when you were an actor, did you did you work with that idea of Absolutely. character mask? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So everything is filtered through the character mask. Really interesting. Yeah. I think that idea, if I can explore it a little bit more with you, that artifice as it strips artifice in the way that artifice itself is the way to getting at something very real. Yes. Right. Not unlike, you know, Hamlet putting on the play to expose the truth of Claudius's crime. Exactly. Right? It's the illusion of the play that ultimately reveals the truth. Or, you know, this great line also acting of Sanford Meisner's, you know, acting is the ability to behave authentically in an imaginary situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, on a deeper level, I think that acknowledges the shifting nature of all identity. Yeah. Does it harken back to what you talk about with Kathy Acker? I believe you articulated there's a fine line between the lies she told and the magical thought or fundamental insight she actually had. Yeah. I wonder if that echoes the same thing of what we're talking about here, you know? 
Yeah. You know, Kathy's a hard person to write a biography about because she was so untruthful about the most basic facts of her life. And so for me, the job became not to call her out on the lies, but to figure out what purpose the lies were serving. Well, exactly. But that goes to our point, right? That her lies were the artifice that stripped artifice of artifice, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So the lies were actually serving a higher truth. Th- that's, uh, that's all I'm trying to get at. Because I think you talk about that very early on yes. in the book. Yeah. So, I mean, anyone who's not at home with paradox shouldn't really be, right. uh, you know. Right. But it was. it's also interesting that a biographer writes that the person I'm writing the biography about was a big liar. So right. <laughs> you're right away, you, you were, you're undermined a certain level of claimed truth to the whole thing anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, great. who says that the writer's supposed to be a reliable witness? Yeah, exactly. Moving on to a question that I really like to ask people that I interview is how they think about change that they affect in the world. You said something very interesting that I quote, what books and what culture can do is change the zeitgeist. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's a good way to begin to understand what you believe change can be through the work that you produce? Well, I mean, any change that, you know, high art produces is going to be more focused and more limited, but it can still be powerful. I wouldn't say that, you know, really even any of my works can particularly change the zeitgeist. That's more the job of popular culture. But High art is always kind of the sort of feeder, Mm. you know. But it can trigger it, certainly. Who gets to speak and why, which is that great phrase in your book, right? Yeah, Yeah, that's what happens. Even if you look back at the history of Art Center, different, like, you know, design, architectural art practices that were being experimented with here in the 20th century became much larger, more popular movements later. You know, it fans out. And you may know that uh, half of our mission statement is influence change. Yeah. And that that occurs for sure. Right. But it's really interesting for me to understand how people talk about that change. Yeah. When they're they're creative, when they're engaged in making things, when they're writing, when they're exploring their own practice. I'm not very kind of grandiose about that. (laughs) You know, I've always thought you know, from when I first even started making other work besides writing, that the work that I like most is the work that may not reach a very large audience, but it's very memorable to that audience. I mean, you know, all of us, I think, who end up being artists and writers can talk about this or that film or book or play or concert that changed my life. Hmm. And it literally does. I mean, I could name a dozen mm. artistic experiences that literally changed my life. And so my goal was always to produce work that other people might say that about later. The way I talk to students about the change that they may be able to create is they don't all have to do it in this large scale. Yeah. Right. And I believe, actually, in the butterfly effect. I totally I, agree. I think that's really important. Yeah. Change can happen from very small, very real, very human, very honest gesture. And I feel that that culture has really been, you've done that here. Hmm. I mean, working with the MFA students last year and this year, there's a seriousness about their work that's really kind of impressive. 
and yeah, unusual. I would agree. So finally, what are the living questions with you right now? What are you working on? What are you exploring in your writing? What's after Kathy Acker? Well, this afternoon, I'm loading up my car and running away down to Baja again, where I, I have a, a writing hideout um, about five hours south of here, south of Ensenada. Wow. And I'm working on a new book that's coming out in the fall called Social Practices, and it's a collection of stories and essays. I've never done that before. Put, I mean, people always say that my work is so hybrid, but as I see it, I have written like that's a story and that's an essay, and I've never put them together in the same book. But it kind of riffs off this, um, you know, that genre known as social practice in the art world, which I'm very dubious about, you know. And I've written a couple of pieces that kind of take the piss out of social practice a little (laughs) bit. But I guess the contention of the book is that all art is a social practice. Mm. So I'm collecting pieces from like from a long time ago, some of them. There's something I wrote in 2005 called Walking Around the Neighborhood, where I was profiling different artists all of them are still around now. Henry Taylor was in that piece and Mark von Schlegel and Delia Brown. And it was it was it was so goofy and naive. Anyway, so I'm gathering up these pieces and as I put them together, I'm realizing that it's kind of this fugue of personalities that move in and out of the different pieces. Yes. So it's becoming like a snapshot of a moment in LA. Um after that I want to write another another novel. Wow. And do you have a sense of what that is at this point? Well, I mean, as we said, we're talking in the beginning about childhood, childhood and family. I've really stayed off those subjects in all of my books, and I think maybe it's time now to kind of move towards that. Great. Thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for your time and your openness and your really inspiring work. I think, uh, I think it's just beautiful. Thank you. I hope you enjoy this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.